0: You're listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Vadim Caraz and Benjamin Hall. All right, here we are. Excited to do this tonight. So we're going to get started here in a little bit. Uh, Just going to wait for a couple more people to get on. But I specifically wanted to talk about the XY recording technique that I was messing around with on Acoustic Guitar. Maybe some recording DIs a little bit. You know, am I missing something when I record with my DIs? Um, as far as, you know, I'm using these neural DSP plugins specifically, but any AMP SIM or bass sim you could use in this context. Um, uh, is it okay to just plug your guitar straight into your or your interface and record di's that way and then uh send it straight through the plugin. or is there something i'm missing like compressors or some kind of magic sweetening you know sauce a uh, piece of gear that you would put on it in between that chain or or after the fact and i thought it would be just something interesting to talk about because you probably have your own philosophy on that Vadim and I have my own and I saw them going really far into the weeds as far as like, Oh yeah, I never would record DIs without the specific piece of gear. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Maybe see what you said.
1: That is interesting. So, so I have, I was actually thinking a lot about this this past weekend. I have, um, my, my preamp that I use has, I'm sure Terrence has this one. It's the 4710D from Universal Audio. Okay. It has four channels on it, and each channel has a high Z input. So I can plug my guitar directly in, mm. but then in the preamp section, I can dial in, I can have a, a, a fully transistor-based circuit, or I can have a tube-based circuit, and I can blend the two. Oh, yeah, that's I crazy. It. I think I've seen a picture of it. Yeah, so it's cool. So I've played around with, with recording DI- Kind of all the way on transistor circuit and all the way on the tube circuit and I actually prefer the transistor circuit for heavy stuff because it's just uh, it's just too round with the tubes, right? It's just not aggressive enough. But what I was thinking about this weekend and I want to get your thoughts on this. Hey, welcome aboard. We're talking about DI's and yeah. recording hey, Josh, guitars what's through up? DI's. Hey, Josh. So. I was thinking like, okay, this is kind of like the analog digital debate, right? Where like, yeah, I can plug my guitar. You can, most people can plug a guitar directly into their interface and probably get like a crystal clear representation of that guitar. What a DI gives you is like a trans, like a transformer, and you know some kind of analog flavor. Hmm. So what I tried this past weekend, not on electric, not on electric guitar, but. I have um, two pieces of analog gear that have transformers in them, and so I was like, I'm gonna take what I plug directly into my uh, interface oh, and it's... just send it through these transformers, cool and do nothing else. Yeah, and it worked really well. I, I'm I have to like play around with it more because I wasn't being like super scientific about my like level matching and stuff. But yeah, I mean that's I think that's what a DI is giving you is some kind of flavor. So go ahead. What's what's
0: your take on this? So it's a little bit different if we're talking bass guitar or um, electric guitar. And I went into this in the episode we recorded that's coming out on this Monday, all about recording awesome bass tone. And so contrasting, I'll talk about guitars first. So with guitars, uh, I would just plug straight in to my interface or the iBox and let all the amp sim do all the work. Um, mainly, okay. mainly because, and there's nothing wrong with putting something before that, like a compressor or some type of plug-in, or some piece of analog gear to sweeten the tone a little bit if you have that. But with guitar, um, the amp is already crunching it so much with distortion or, um, overdrive that I don't really need anything else on it. And I'm just going to rely on that plug-in yeah. to do a lot of the work. But with bass, I pretty much always go through... Um, if I'm recording here, I go through my analog compressor, which I love, the Dark Glass Supersymmetry. But even if I was just recording DI, I would put like the WAVES CL76, CLA-76 plug-in on that to help control the, the dynamic level of the bass because you're not distorting it and it, the dynamic range is so large compared to what a guitar is giving you, not necessarily the DI track itself, yeah, but it's just helpful to control that a little bit more. So I think I process bass more than I would guitars. Hey guys, if you're just joining, welcome aboard. We're just hanging out,
1: talking, recording. yeah. Ben brought up an interesting thing about DI's and like, do we need a DI box or just plug directly in? So leave your questions, comments below. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Really we're just, kind of hanging out mostly to answer questions and just kind of bullshitting around other than that. So uh yeah, leave us your thoughts. We're also curious if you're a podcast listener, if you listen to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, it's a podcast, if you've never heard of it, weekly podcast to try and help you level up your DIY productions. If you are a listener, we're curious on your thoughts on like which episodes you like better, which episodes you like less and what you want to see more and less of. So leave your comments, leave your questions, and we'll hang out for as long as people are uh, interested. Not indefinitely, but you know, we're, we're down for a long hang. Yeah.
0: Terrence just posted about the ready DI is yeah. really good. So I just looked it up oh, and I've it's it's $800, so I hope it's good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> then we got another comment, it says, Okay, here we go. I actually have used my emulated out from my amplifier quite often when recording guitars, and it is giving me some amazing tone. So I know it's annoying to type this, but I wonder if you can elaborate on that. When you when you when you have an emulated out, does that simulate a speaker already? Or is that just giving you like the preamp tone and then you have to run that through some kind of cabinet emulation? I'm curious about that. Yeah, me too. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Ben, with what you were saying. On on guitars, I've found and I've played around with this a bit. This is kind of like when we talked about gain staging. I, I don't really want to introduce a lot of harmonic distortion from anything other than like my amp and my or my amp sim or whatever I'm using. So I tend to agree with you. I prefer almost just as clean a sound as possible.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And plugins are doing, I'm the most recent um, amp sims that have come out, they're doing such a good job of capturing tone that I really don't ever feel the need to like add too much to it um at least as far as when it comes to recording like I would do things with mixing but if we're strictly talking about recording and getting a good tone I don't really feel the need to add too much more to that
1: yeah and I mean think about this too your guitar if you're just playing live you're plugging your guitar directly into your pedal board and then into the amp right yeah you're not using a DI Live, so, like, why? what are you trying to get out of adding it into your recording chain? That's it's kind of confusing. Let's see what – see, we got a uh, follow-up comment here. It essentially runs the tone exactly as it would send to my speaker, and instead it sends it to the emulated line out. The amp, I have Marshall 100DFX gives me a tone out of the speaker, too. So, that's interesting. See, I, I – I, that it depends on how that amp is working. I'm not familiar with that particular because, like you're probably it probably has some kind of speaker emulation built into it is my guess. If it sounds yeah. good, like coming straight out of it. Cause if you just took the the preamp signal, it probably wouldn't sound that good, right? You'd need something else.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure. Um Josh, if you could uh follow up with so it's like a live monitor. Okay. It, do you know so Josh, do you know if it's emulating any of any cabinet like impulse responses or is it only like the preamp of the head itself like an enhanced in other words enhanced it would be DI. like the difference
1: between yeah, it would be like the difference between taking like an f x send versus you know an emulated output which I would assume has uh, has some kind of speaker emulation,
0: yeah. Cool. Yeah.
1: So Terrence, I've heard of that. I've heard of that ready DI and I've seen it and it it does look and sound awesome. But again, I think inside that thing is just like, what is it? It's just a transformer, right? Ultimately, it's just a preamp. Oh, okay. Josh says it's just a preamp.
0: I did see one. I add stuff in post to fill it out a bit. Hmm. Okay, cool. So that's really similar to what I posted about last week in the, in the group was about taking the DI from my Mesa head and then sending that in and reamping or not reamping, but using the cab SIM and the dark glass plugin bypassing the pedal to kind of, Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's like 50% analog, 50% digital in that domain. So yeah, that's cool. Josh, I'm, I'm
1: curious too to, to know if we, um, you get good, uh, Acceptable latency with that? Like what what what's your interface using? What's up, Jake? And Terrence says that ready has four tubes, so it's four times as good as I thought. That's... <laughs> no, I bet so it's four
0: tubes, I, not transformers, yeah. I bet it sounds good and and I'm glad it, I'm it glad does sound good. Up. I've I've heard it. Yeah, and I'm glad you followed up with that, Terrence, because regardless of the price or not, um I'm just curious why people prefer certain DIs over other di's like my philosophy is kind of to be as affordable as possible and you know in this in the true spirit of do it yourself like um you're a liar <laughs> well to some extent to some extent I, Yeah, yeah i hear you i mean as much as you can be with this stuff because we're all addicted to gear right we just have to control our urges right but yeah but anyways i've seen some cool di's out there where like you were saying, you can dial in like there's a tone coloring knob on it, which is essentially mm. probably what you're talking about, like how much transis- transistor are you adding versus tube, um, and yeah, yeah, like Terence is saying, it all depends on the sound that you want from it. So, but I'm
1: surprised, I'm surprised people in the Neural DSP uh, forum were 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 that stringent because again, it doesn't. I don't know, it doesn't make sense to me. You're 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 again you're adding processing effectively. You're doing something to the tone coming off of your guitar. And the question is why? Like what are you trying to get out of it? And and you know, maybe there's some good reasons for it. I can't say I've ever really played around with, with a DI box like that. But um like I said, from what I've tried with playing with uh introducing like some tube distortion on
0: my preamp, I haven't liked it. It hasn't reamped as well. Yeah. That's a good point. I I like what you said, though, and maybe that's a good place to hang our hat on this topic about is, you know, when you're trying, in your search for the perfect tone, like we all want the best tone we can possibly get every time we record. No doubt. But in your search for that, um, it's, I think, important to think through, you know, what am I doing? Does this make sense? Am I going to get better tone out of it? And maybe that's why people are asking these questions on forums and stuff like that, because they don't. They, don't they want, want to be, the best tone. Yeah, sure. they want the best tone, and they don't want to miss something that's maybe obvious. But I think sometimes yeah. it's really just as simple as plugging in and recording, <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah. So
0: cool. cool. Well, guys, if you're on here with us, thank you.
1: We appreciate it. It's a DIY recording, guys. First time ever on Instagram. Way easier than Facebook way, and Zoom, way by the easier. way, <laughs> if, you, if anybody's curious. <laughs> but drop us your comments and your questions. We're just hanging out. Uh, no Specific agenda. We are curious to get some feedback on that, like episode types. If you're a podcast listener, if not, just uh, whatever you want to talk about. We're we're here to uh, to hang. Yeah. Um. While we wait for those to come in, Ben, what else did you have? You had something else? On
0: yeah. So one like other to, thing on the agenda is I posted in the group last week. Um. I was recording some acoustic guitars, and I've known about this. Mm, yeah. I've known about this technique for a while. I don't know if I've actually ever used it in a recording other than just experimenting around, but it really worked this time. And it's called the XY uh, microphone recording technique or XY condenser microphone recording technique. And essentially what you're doing is you're taking two – well, not just condensers, but – Cardioid shape, that's what I'm trying to come up with. That's the word I was trying to think of. You're taking two cardioid, cardioid microphones and you're angling them at 90 degree angles from each other. This is normally done with pencil microphones, so the, the small diaphragm ones. So if you could imagine mm-hmm. that the tips of my fingers are the diaphragm where um, sound is being picked up. So I'm angling both these microphones at 90 degree angles to one another. So think back to junior year of high school trigonometry (laughs) 90 degree angles and then we're gonna just kind of angle them towards the recording source so that each microphone is at 45 degree angles from the source so essentially if you're trying to pick up something directly in front of me they would kind of be pointing in at this direction so
1: how how close are they to each other like how close are the um
0: the way yeah, that I did it, it, so I I did it in a little bit of a different way, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about um, okay. here too, because it was a little bit unconventional, but it worked. Um, but I've seen pictures where they're kind of right up against each other, or they're kind of overlapping, so they're like you're getting exactly the same uh, focal point, I guess, of where the sound's coming into, because you want them to be as close together as possible, and essentially. Uh, whenever you pan them hard right and left, you get a stereo sound from a mono source. Essentially is the the point of it. And the reason why... So I want to talk about first why I decided to do this with acoustic guitar recording. Because most of the time, I would prefer recording two separate guitars and panning them hard right and left, because that's the most... Uh, stereo that you can get with guitar, or it's going to sound way more stereo than just a mono source that you treat uh, like a stereo source, or, or you have two microphones to pick it up. The reason I did this is because I thought it would be less distracting because it was a very intimate sounding vocal and acoustic recording. And I thought having two really wide panned acoustic guitars playing especially if I didn't get the performances exactly right on, there would be those little discrepancies between um, each performance, and they could be a little bit distracting, if that makes sense. So I figured it would be better to have just a single guitar and try to get more stereo width from that. Interesting. Okay, so all that being said, I used large diaphragm condensers to do this technique instead of the small diaphragm. And the the first problem that you get with this is that the diaphragm is right in the middle instead of on the end. So you can't get each microphone as close together as you would want. Um, So what I wound up having to do was kind of putting them on end like this. And then I just rotated one microphone 90 degrees and then both of them, I rotated another 45, so I got the same results, essentially, using a different kind of mic for this technique. I, I searched the internet, and I couldn't find any pictures of people doing this technique with large diaphragm microphones, which probably because it's I idealistically not done with large diaphragm condensers, but I love the results that I got, and I thought they sounded really awesome, and it was exactly what I was trying to achieve with that technique, so... Success. That's cool. Yeah. I
1: would love to, to hear those results. Uh, yeah. For those of you who are here, thank you for being with us. We're just talking about recording. Supposed to be DIY recording, guys. Podcast going live. We're also recording. So, do I not have my right. camera facing the right way? Okay. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's I love right. that. It's a secret inside look at the panel where the magic happens. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Man, we are, like, technologically subpar, I guess. I guess But anyway, so. that's really cool. <laughs> Back to your mic <laughs> techniques. You were talking about two large diaphragm condenser microphones, and you put them head-to-head, yeah. rotated 45 degrees. I think Terrence will probably know this, but I think, isn't that called, like, a Blumline pair or something? Isn't that, like, a technique for recording drum room mics or uh, drum rooms? Hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure either. But anyway, that it's really cool. So... I guess let me ask you this because I've always used a two mic technique for acoustic guitar I use a large diaphragm condenser microphone and a small diaphragm condenser microphone but they're pretty far apart from each other probably like I don't know three four feet so how would you say I, I'm assuming you've tried something like that also so how would you say this technique with the two mics close together compares in terms of you know your stereo
0: image um, and so on. Wait, are you asking me or are you asking Terrence? (laughs) Because I don't know. (laughs) I'm asking everybody, but no, I was asking
1: you. So with this technique that you tried, when you listen back to the result in terms of like stereo width, uh, how did it compare to like, you know, let's say a more traditional maybe technique for acoustic guitar where you have maybe, you know, one mic looking at the bridge, kind of on one mic looking at you know, somewhere at the neck joint or something like that, where mm. the mics are physically a little bit farther away, which is typically what, what I've done for acoustic guitar.
0: It was interesting because one, so let's talk about maybe the difference between that and two performances and capturing that. Because the problem I always I always have with guitars, and I've talked to Vadim about this, is panning them too wide, and then when I'm wearing headphones, I feel like the guitars are coming from behind my head. So I tend to not like to pan things so hard right and left but with this um when I panned hard right and left I I didn't feel like it felt that same way it just felt like enhanced mono so it, Okay yeah okay so that's cool Yeah it wasn't like a very drastic sound or like there's no guitar in the middle and it's just all on the sides it it kind of felt like somewhere in between like it just you know it was really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to try that. If you guys are just joining us, we're talking
1: about Ben's experimentation weekend with yes. miking acoustic guitar.
0: Oh, it was and an exciting weekend, let me tell you. Two... <laughs> hey,
1: for us, that's like as an exciting a weekend as you can get these days. But yeah, we're talking about using two microphones that are like close together, kind of a, you know. Yeah, I'll the, show you. Uh, yeah, nice.
0: Yeah. But once again, yeah. like. And yeah. so what
1: what you're saying makes sense cuz because the capsules of the microphones are so close together there's st- you're they're still you're not going to get su- something super wide like you would if you like d- what you're talking about like if you double track guitars and you pan one hard right hard left then yeah they can get this effect where it's like too wide but yeah because these these mics are so close together I guess you're saying like there's just a slight difference between the two of them and so you get like just enhanced mono
0: is a great way to put it. Yeah. I don't know. It's <laughs> awesome. And I guess what, the benefit What else do you think So the what else do you th- Go ahead. Yeah, uh, so the benefit here too now that I'm thinking about it is if you were to let's say you only had one microphone to put on your acoustic guitar, where where would you position that microphone? Are you asking me? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll just ask you. I think it's a little bit rhetorical, but I'll ask you. you yeah, where would you put it?
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm gonna answer your rhetorical question. So no, I would put it like roughly aligned with the 12th fret, about a foot from the guitar, and rotate it so that the mic face is facing like the neck joint.
0: Yeah, I think most people would do that. Um, Hey hey T-Bird, yeah, it's something similar to that. Um, So with that in mind, that's like the most ideal place to capture your acoustic. And so if you're using this mic technique where you have the the microphone capsules literally right next to each other so close together you can essentially get that stereo sound from one performance and and have it angled at the the sweet spot of the guitar whereas if you took more of a you know a traditional stereo uh miking technique like you would do with drums like overhead on drums and space them farther apart you would be capturing maybe one ideal spot and a less ideal spot or Two less ideal spots together to kind of combine that. So, just some things. To uh, yeah, think I about. guess
1: it, like you said, it depends what you're going for. Um, if you're going for like enhanced width, then then maybe you would want those mics spaced farther apart. Yeah, true. So T Bird said it's like horizontal mid side technique, right? Technique, right? And I'd be honest, I am not a hundred percent sure. It sounds familiar, but I have to look that up. I'm gonna look that up right now. Horizontal midside. Mm. I think it's more like an XY stereo pair. Yeah. So T right? Bird, I Because you're 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 kind of trying to mimic that. Like you said, with two pencil condensers, you know, you'd have them at a 45, maybe like capsules right over each
0: other. That's like an XY stereo pair. Yeah. Yeah. I think T Bird, what you're talking about is you would do that with if you had one microphone that was a ribbon mic in a figure 8 pattern and then another mic that was oh that's a, right a um I forgot the word again not condenser but uh cardioid pattern cardioid yes so that way when you have the figure 8 pattern ribbon microphone or whatever I guess you could have other microphones that are figure 8 pattern but t- traditionally it's with a ribbon microphone and you put that one sideways so that the two figure eight patterns would be facing yeah like kind of Just. exactly they would be facing perpendicular to your recording s- source and then the cardioid microphone would be angled directly towards the source that you were recording and the idea behind doing that is you can determine using your faders if you capture both at the same volume you can determine using faders how much mid and side you want in your recording. If you want a more direct signal, you pull down all the fader on the figure eight pattern uh, microphone that you captured. If you want entirely side, then you pull down the fader on the cardioid. Yeah, that is a cool trick though right. too. But this isn't. This is not that. Cool it's, it's this is something different than that. Yeah,
1: that's a great explanation, um, and and that's something I think in most diy situations I, to me like that that midside technique if you have a really great sounding room and you're trying to capture the room that could be a really cool technique cuz it's like a natural reverb yeah. you can basically like you said playing with those faders you can add some room r- room sound or remove it but in most diy situations we probably aren't working with great sounding rooms so that's maybe a little a little fancy
0: yeah i would Blending agree with those that
1: those in the mix yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Well, cool. Um, any questions, yeah, guys? Send me,
1: send me what you got on that, by okay. the way. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
0: Yeah, I was just saying, any questions, guys, feel free to drop them in the chat there. Um, but yeah, Vadim, I'll send those over to you just for you to hear them. I was super pleased with the results. So I kind of felt embarrassed that I hadn't been doing that up until this point, And I was like, oh, I could have saved myself so much time. I wouldn't have had to be double tracking acoustic guitars. Now that you've done that, Uh,
1: can you think of other sources or other scenarios in which you'd you'd use that technique?
0: I feel like I would use that. So I'm glad you asked that question because this can maybe give people some ideas of where to use it in their own recordings. But I've done a lot of recordings where you have, like, especially with my one indie rock band that I play in, The Fading Light, we have a lot of intro songs that's just acoustic guitar and the vocal and a lot of times for those parts of the songs i just want like a solo acoustic guitar um coming up the middle or even if it's even if i had stereo guitars sometimes the problem with stereo is like i was saying before where you have the little discrepancies between the performances and if they're not exactly on or if you have one part where the performance was done really well and it matches up perfectly it's not distracting and then maybe it's a more difficult part and there are those those licks or whatever you're playing that you can't you can't match them up perfectly, and so then you can then the listener hears that difference and it's distracting all of a sudden. Instead of just hearing one acoustic, you hear two acoustics. So I think maybe going going ahead in the future, anytime where I have those intimate parts in a song, I would use this miking technique just to have it be a more concentrated or or a focused. Uh, Sound source for the listener to listen to, and then when the song gets busier, maybe it needs something wider. Then that's whenever I would bring in double tracked, panned hard wide acoustics in that scenario. Yeah,
1: that yeah, makes sense. So it's a, it's a great way of looking at it. And Guys, if you're if you're with us, the DIY recording guys, just hang in live. Leave some questions. Leave some comments. um <laughs> We'll see where this takes us. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yes, so I'm wondering, like, what about, like, vocals? Do you think that would work on vocals? That's a cool idea. I don't see why it wouldn't. I'm interested in, in trying that because I always use... Um, that's pretty much how we do the fading stuff. Yeah, fading light stuff. Okay. Could also try it on acoustic piano. That's a great one. That's true. Um, yeah, especially if it's... Um, like you said, like if it's an intimate piano part where you maybe don't need that whole, you know, the piano Pianos already takes up such a wide part of the frequency spectrum, right? It's got like the whole frequency spectrum. You may not want it to take up the whole stereo field. So I could see that being a cool technique. Um, yeah, because on vocals, on main vocals, I'm always using little stereoizing tricks, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm wondering if this could be a way to get that. I'm, I'm looking for enhanced mono, effectively, and this could be a cool way to get it. I might yeah.
0: I might try that. We'll see. I wonder, too, if... And I haven't thought this through a lot, but I wonder if if you would use that technique on piano. The one problem I have with like traditional stereo piano is uh, then in the mix you have this uh, real big discrepancy between the high end and the low end of the piano. So, I've got this like crazy bass coming out of my left speaker and only high end coming out of the right speaker. Yes. Yes. That is, uh, yeah, that's something you got to watch.
1: So, Alfie just joined and I'm going to bring this up because Alfie is an acoustic guitarist and singer. Mm. And he was actually in the studio with me this past weekend. We were working on some pre production on some new songs. Awesome. So, Alfie has an plays acoustic guitar, but his acoustic guitar has like a one of those uh, Fishman pickups in it. So we were recording, you know, a microphone and also the direct sound off the pickup, kind of like a DI. And So, Ben, I'm curious to know what you think. And if anybody listening has some comments on this as well, how do you handle that? Like, um, you know, we want to capture the acoustics of the guitar, but we also want to capture the sound. You know, we always want to capture the direct sound because it gives us more flexibility. Have you been in a situation like that, and what have you done with
0: that DI? Most of the time, I find that if it's a well-made acoustic, just miking up the acoustic traditionally, capturing the way it sounds in the room, you what you want. It, it always sounds way better than the DI. Um, but that might also be a reflection on maybe some guitar manufacturers are just cutting the cost by putting in a cheap DI or a cheap microphone or preamp in, in your acoustic. But if you've got a good sounding acoustic electric, by all means, you know, what, just whatever sound you're looking for and whether or not you're blending. I feel like the way to go is always the blended in. I don't think I'd ever choose an acoustic DI. I
1: know, I knew you were <laughs> going to say that and I totally agree with you.
0: Yeah, I don't think I'd ever choose to throw away the microphone captures unless I just did a terrible job at... Miking, or maybe I forgot which which way the capsule was pointing, and I actually was facing it towards the room, and not <laughs> not towards the acoustic. That could be cool. That could be cool. That could be room sound. I'll tell you what
1: we did on Alfie's first EP was I had two microphones on the guitar, and we took the DI off off the uh, the pickup, and in the mix, if I remember correctly, I was playing around with it, just like you were playing around with you know different combinations on the bass. Uh, the bass amp, which is going to be next week's episode yeah. on the, of the podcast. But yeah, what I did was I took the DI signal. I found it had like really good subby kind of low end, which we wanted on some songs. It just had, I think it had more of the frequency spectrum than the mics did. So I think I had the DI kind of down the middle. And then I panned the two microphones to either side. And it, it gave oh, a, okay. a pretty... A pretty good stereo uh, image of of the guitar, so we might try that again Alfie um, I was thinking about this a little bit we will probably
0: try that again on this on this uh, this next ep so my one question that jumps to mind when you talk about that is I'm sure you had to shift the you had you had to shift the microphone captures right because the di is a more direct sound to make them all match up in phase i don't think so. Okay. So the phase just uh, matches. up anyways.
1: I'll, I definitely checked, and I actually, to be honest, I cannot remember if it lined up or not. Um, sometimes you don't want it to line up perfectly. It's kind of like recording a drum kit. Oh, you know, yeah. You don't necessarily want all the transient peaks to line up. But I definitely always check for phase and multiple miking techniques. So what we're talking about there is anytime you have multiple – well, that's just multiple mics. Anytime you have multiple ways of recording a single source, yeah. if those waves – like, don't line up perfectly. You can get weird, like, cancellations and stuff. So always check for that. But I don't remember if I had to actually change it or not. I might have. As long as it sounds good. As long as you knew to check for it. That's right. No, good point, <laughs> well, All right, guys. we well, are cool. um leave your comments, questions. Uh, We're just hanging out. It's kind of like a live episode in a sense. You're recording your audio, yeah? Yeah. Okay, yeah, me too. Although I started late but not ah, too Whatever. Late. So yeah, we're, um, I don't know. We'll just see where this, see where this takes
0: us. Exactly.
1: Yes. So I will <laughs> say, uh, again, I mentioned it earlier, but for those who joined, I tried, uh, this, this past weekend, since Alfie and I were working in just on pre-production, it gave me a chance to kind of play around with some settings be- behind the scenes. And I was recording both the direct sounds off the off the mics but I was also taking that sound off the mics and running it through like some transformers and some pieces of gear I have, just to see what it, what they would do. And I wasn't really—I don't know what I was expecting, but it definitely caught my attention. Running through those transformers, hmm. um, I might do an episode about that at some point. Eventually, we'll talk about you know analog and stuff. Not something you need to do at all, but I was talking recently to a guy. Uh, who runs DIY recording equipment. We're actually going to have him on an episode. And he explained it to me, this really interesting way, this concept of like this analog uh, harmonic distortion or whatever. Mm. He said it's like varnish when you're making furniture. Right? You can't quite get it all in one coat. It kind of works best with multiple layers to get this kind of glow that you want. And I was like, huh, that's a really interesting analogy for it. So
0: as far as the the amount of stages for analog is that what he was saying or i think he was saying like rather
1: than just <laughs> taking whatever your your digital pristine digital recorded mass and then just like trying to run that whole thing through some something mm. like a tape machine that's not going to give you as good a result as if like you were recording everything like through you know preamps or whatever and then combine all that together you know, it's kind of like multiple coats of varnish is what he was saying.
0: I can agree with that. I think on multiple levels, maybe the most obvious one is that just adding a little bit at a time is going to sound more pleasant than adding a whole bunch at once. But also, yeah. if you're only adding a whole bunch at once, it only can be one type, correct? So it's better yes. to like yeah. switch up the, t- the type of analog or the transformers that you're using. Like I Good could, point, yeah. I could slam my whole mix with like a tape emulation, but it's only going to be that. Well, actually, I've had this problem before, where I've been mixing and I've put like the CLA 76 plug-in on like every single track with the 60 hertz emulation on it, and you're like, what is oh, this yeah. horrible hum that I hear in my mixes? And it's that's that same frequency and emulation that's being repeated multiple times across every single track. That's not desirable. Yeah,
1: that <laughs> happened to me on a like. There's a track in my portfolio on my Colin Frog recording website that has in the beginning it got that hiss, and I know it's because of a tape machine emulation. So a similar <laughs> problem, but because I remember you telling me that and you were like, yeah, I uh, yeah. <laughs> you had to like automate. You used to have to automate the fader oh, on your like your master fader. Or yeah, something I would to get automate it. it
0: all the time but, because there was always noise, and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Yeah, so. So plugins, these plugins emulate
1: analog gear. If you're not familiar with this, like you've probably seen, you know, compressor plugins or whatever, and because they want to get like as close to the analog gear as possible, a lot of them will actually emulate the noise. Like gear has, has noise. You know, you plug it mm-hmm. into the wall, whatever. And so what Ben was saying was like, okay, you got this plugin, it emulated the noise of a hardware, but then you put it on like five different tracks in your session, and all of a sudden that noise is like adding up and up. All right, so we got a question here t-bird do you guys use hardware units specifically for the sound of tube circuitry and if so which ones as far as bussing hold tracks through them oh that's a good question so i know yeah. we're different on this so uh, w- i mix 90 percent in the bus uh, in the in the box when i record i do have like my preamp just has tubes in it so sometimes i'll i'll add a little bit of tube stuff there but what i do is i, I mix in the box and then at the very end of my uh, my mix bus, so all my tracks kind of bust together ultimately into one main bus. I do send that bus out and through. I have three pieces of analog gear that I very near and dear to my heart that I love. <laughs> and I will say this is what I, always, I mean. We're DIY recording podcast, so I wanna, I'll just say this: they do sound better than the plug-in emulations of them, and I've proven this to myself through blind A B te- uh, tests. But they don't sound better enough to justify the cost, just on how much better they sound. I have them because they're fun and I like them. And they look good. Yeah. I'll show you them.
0: That's fair enough. Yeah, they
1: are. <laughs> but you certainly don't need that. I mean, Andy Shepps mixes in the in the box. Like yeah. Most Entirely. records you've heard. Are in the box,
0: so it's not something you need at all. Ben, what's what's your answer? I'm 100% in the box. Mostly just when I started my studio and recording, I didn't have a lot of money on hand, so I didn't want to just go into debt or you know credit card debt or take out a loan to just buy analog gear to get into it. it. Um, Especially if you're just learning, I'd say like the plugins are well within 90% if not better, probably better than that, 95%. The sound of analog gear so i wouldn't split hairs about it if it, if cost is an issue for you you know just do the plugins
1: yeah absolutely the plugins are great i mean i i have uh, one of my pieces of gear since t-bird you asked is it's it's an emulate it's a it's a clone of the ssl 4000 g series compressor it's a stereo compressor that's pretty you know it's a well-known stereo compressor i wanted to um, and I, I, for years, I use the Slate FG Gray plugin um, on most of my mixes. It's a great sounding plugin, and I thought, you know, what would be cool is to get a hardware unit that does yeah. it. And so they're very close to each other. I've done blind shootouts, and I do them every couple of months. And like I said, I I, I can pick the analog piece out consistently, but this is like sitting with my eyes closed, you know, listening as closely as I can, like. If you just played me one in my car and were like, was this the plug-in or the the compressor or the hardware unit, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you.
0: Now, I do have a buddy that um, he has his own studio, and he swears by analog gear. He has a lot of it. And the thing that he always tells me is that- Is it Terrence? It's not Terrence. He's one of them. but It wasn't his <laughs> specific friend. Um, he might not be as bad as Terrence. He's almost. <laughs> and we're just picking on you, Terrence, because we want to be you. That's the only reason. So. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, but he always says that it's easier for him to dial in the sound on an analog unit than it is on a plugin. He feels like he has to screw out the plugin a lot more. And I agree with that. I can't really verify that because I haven't spent a ton of time on analog gear. But you know, there's probably something to that. I agree with that. I mean, I have
1: um, I've used analog compressors. I used to own a Distressor, for example. Mm. And I will tell you, like, with my analog gear, I, I will so like yes, the plugins get incredibly close. It's hard to make an analog piece of gear sound bad though. And like I can make a plugin sound bad very easily. Mm. <laughs> so I think there is something something to that. Yeah. Yeah, T Bird, if you have any of a specific uh any specific pieces in your collection, definitely let us know.
0: If Terrence I... has a lot. Now I will say that, like, I wish, I don't know if I wish I had analog gear. I would like to have some, though. it would be cool. Like, like a cool bus compressor or even, even a, st- or two, two pieces of distressors. Like, that would be awesome to have. Yeah. To track through, you mean? Yeah. To track through or even to just run mixes through. I found, see, I, I, when I had my
1: distressor, I found it was annoying to mix with it because I'd have to like, I don't know, run stuff out and then back in. It was like, I'm not going to do this. But for tracking, it was it was very cool, um, and that's why I, I ended up settling on this this compromise where I was like, I don't want to have to run my mix any parts of my mix through analog gear except the final bus that I will run through, and I do and enj- I enjoy that process. here we go terrence is gonna sell you some no he's just kidding
0: (laughs) of course you're just kidding
1: (laughs) t-bird says no i don't have any of my own sadly i would love to have a few pieces though i will tell you guys this um the diy market is something that's caught my eye diy recording equipment where it's, it's people who design circuits but then they just send you like a box of parts and instructions and you solder them yourself um if you're comfortable with soldering You can get incredible sounding stuff very affordably. Uh, There's a bunch of companies out there that do this. I'd Uh, be very interested interested in that
0: because that's fun. Like You're building it at the same time. So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be really cool. Very cool. I was just thinking of something else that would take us completely off topic from this, so I don't want to jump away if we haven't fully exhausted the analog uh, talk here. I don't know if you can exhaust. Yeah, I mean—
1: Man, there's. A, I just bought actually just this past weekend. I bought a soldering. Finally, bought a good solder station because those those little pencil ones that just plug into the wall are terrible. And I I've really struggled with those. So I finally bought a decent one. It was only like you know 50, 60 bucks. Um, what will I do with it? Is the question. I'm not sure yet. But mm. uh, <laughs> it's it's a nice thing to have. Yeah.
0: Keep. So us- what's your what's your next topic? What's what's your off topic topic? Sure. So I don't know if you saw, but I just released a music video playthrough thing that I wrote you using, um, get good drums, all MIDI drums and, um, I didn't ne- see it. neural DSP plugins. Um, it's on my studio page, but I can send it to you later for you, for you to check out. But, uh, probably the most tedious part of putting that together was programming the drums. And I just kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, I don't know how many people out there are programming drums or doing that kind of a thing. I know that's part of what you do in your yeah. studio. So if you're if you don't want to do it, then uh, go send them to Vadim because <laughs> he could do it for you. Thanks, but, man. Yeah. yeah. One of one of the things though that I did to make them sound real because I there's just nothing more annoying than just hearing a perfectly like 100% perfect drum performance just because it's not real. It's not realistic. There's no humanity in that whatsoever, so no uh, humanity, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no humanity, literally. So um, I did a little bit of work to humanize the drums, but I also, beyond just using uh, the built-in t- tools in my DAW, there's like a humanizing function. You can slide it uh, based on what percentage do you want this to be messed up versus you know perfect. What does it do? Uh, so it just introduces it, some it, random error into it, but it might not be entirely random. Like it timing
1: might... or velocity error or what? Both. Or, or both? Both. Both. Okay, cool.
0: So I did a little bit of both, and I don't think it's entirely random. I think they have some kind of algorithm that makes it sound more like a human, because you can also run into the problem if it's entirely randomized. It doesn't sound more human either. It sounds like... It doesn't sound... yeah. sounds like a
1: broken robot
0: exactly a broken robot um but that's a cool that's a cool thing to use to like kind of humanize the performances that way not every snare drum and kick drum are hitting at the same time or hitting on the beat some are a little bit in front of the beat and others are behind the beat a little bit but on top of that the super tedious work i did was on like all the double bass patterns i went in and i decrease the velocity on that or on all the 16th note and 32nd drum note fills I went in and like hand painted the velocities to make sure that they weren't as loud Ooh, as like painted. the yeah the, that they weren't as loud as the loudest snare hits and so I just wanted to bring that up and maybe hear some of like what you do with that kind of a thing because I think it's super necessary if you are going to program drums and go that route like you have to put in the work to do that, or else it just sounds too stale a robotic. And I know that there are some records out there I like that have very robotic sounding drums, but for the most part, I don't want them to sound that way.
1: Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, I can uh I mean I could talk about this for hours, but I'll just <laughs> say briefly, like my technique for it's a multi-stage process. The first thing I do is I record my pattern. If I'm if I'm writing the song, I record the pattern using my fingers and drum pads. So I'll do like the kick snare pattern. Then I'll go through and you know do my hi hats and cymbals, and then from there I already have something that's a little more human. Um, and then I so then I do what you're talking about, which is actually go in and start playing with velocities, and um, I find that velocity. Humanization if you're doing it manually is even more important than tempo. Right. Mm -hmm. If you have something that's locked, if your drum programming is locked to the grid, but your velocity still sounds human, you still like have a groove. And for those of you who aren't familiar with velocity, just means if you're a drummer, it's how hard you're hitting whatever you're hitting. That's the velocity. Yeah. So playing with that velocity makes a huge difference. I also find that adding plenty of room mic into the mix makes things sound a little more real. Uh, so there's a lot of little uh,
0: humanization tricks like that 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 have worked for me. It's very cool. I did find through the process too that like if you spend a little bit of time it's it's not fun work. It's tedious and it's kind of like especially when it was the last thing I was doing and I just wanted to kind of get it finished and done with <laughs> like you don't want to spend time like playing with velocities. But what I did find was because I took the time I found some like common Uh, some commonalities in the way that the drum program velocities were written that's going to save me time later. Like I know that everything above 95% and get good drums or maybe not 95%, anything above 95 on the MIDI scale is a rim shot. And then everything between 95 and 85 is like the hardest hit velocity and then below that is like the next level. So because I took that time to go, go through all of that, I know that like, oh, okay, whenever I program drums again and I want to get a rim shot, I know I need to put it at this velocity instead of having to play with each individual one to make sure that you know, it sounds good. Right. You, you do save time in the long run, so it's worth it if you've never done it and you do record that way and, and you put things out that just spend a little bit of time to learn the program.
1: Yeah, and it's not just the program; it's also the uh, the sample library. It's it's yeah, that's right, true. Like, yeah, cause I cause I use uh, I use Superior Drummer, and which is similar, and I have different li- drum libraries in there, and even within between those drum libraries, even though it's the same program, different velocities sound different, and I have found that that like oh my god, there's there's one I use that has a really bad snare sample in it, and so like Ugh. every sixth snare hit, I'm like, ah, oh, man, that's a bad sample. Sometimes I'll have to go change those
0: out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's funny. So just one of the samples yeah. that it ran random, yeah, goes bad, to. Yeah,
1: it's just a bad hit. And, like, so the way these things work, one of the reasons these programs are so cool, if if you're listening to this and you haven't used one, is that, you know, they'll have a drummer, like, hit a snare drum with, like, at the same velocity three different times, and then when you're triggering the snare samples, it'll pull randomly maybe from one of those three. So if you're doing really fast stuff, it still sounds kind of natural. So yeah, like one of the snare samples is just a dud. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. I wonder yeah. why they
0: included it. That's weird.
1: It's an old library. I, I really like the kick sounds in it, but... Yeah, I don't know why. I guess it's you know it's it's people. It's people recording in a studio. They're not perfect either. I guess. Yeah, that's true.
0: So you like Superior? Yeah. You like Superior Drummer?
1: I know a lot of I people do, like, yeah. use it. I, yeah, I've used it for over a decade, so I'm I'm just really Dang. comfortable with it at this point.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think that Superior Drummer maybe not a
1: maybe not a decade, maybe maybe six years. Probably okay,
0: six years. From what I've heard of it, I've... I've been around. For I've not owned it or used it, but from what I've heard of it, it sounds like they're more ready-to-go samples. A lot of them, like they sound oh, really? more like they sound more like a finished product. Like in comparison to Get Good Drum, I feel like those just sound like really well-tuned and well-recorded drums. That if you're going just, to be doing, well, we got
1: we got we got 15 seconds left for whatever that means. It says 15 seconds remaining. I guess oh, we're
0: getting... 15 seconds. We're really, getting, we're getting the hook. We're getting the
1: hook <laughs> off the stage from from, from I Instagram. Guess
0: so. Well, we have gone an hour, so
1: I don't know. Should we? You want to come back?
0: Well, I guess we're done. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's funny! Oh my god, I can't believe that happened. What is it? Was- it's one hour. We we were we just did a one hour live broadcast. We did, and, and then and then Instagram was like it just started a countdown from 30 seconds and everybody got booted. That's crazy. Now, now here we are. That
0: was pretty hilarious. You, so, we learned something learn something new every day. I'm guessing that there's just a the generic hour limit on live streams? Yeah, but like, I don't know, we were killing it. <laughs> I know we were killing it. Oh well. Give the people what they want. Exactly. I just felt I just felt like we had to get back on and Just say I'm sorry to everybody because it was just so abrupt how we all got booted off. Anyways.
1: We uh we're we are slaves to these social media
0: masters. I get uh I guess so. They just we're just we're just marionettes. (laughs) I guess so. Well, I guess that's that's it for this episode. But um, yeah, guys, if you uh I mean, we still have this recorded, so this is going to go out anyways. But um, if you guys want to hear us talk about anything in particular, you know, give us feedback. You can uh, message us over at the DIY Recording Guys Facebook page, or in the community, or go ahead, give out our email addresses <laughs> if I can remember them. I think it's Ben at DIY Recording dot com and Vadim. You got it at Vadim at DIY Recording dot com. Yes. So yes. either one of us. Hit us no, up. That's right. That's right. Either one or both.
1: Yes. And uh, we got, let's see, this week's episode that was just released was dialing in bass tone. And the next episode is recording bass, which is a really cool episode. I'm really excited for that one to go out. Oh, awesome. You did was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, you did a nice job and um, trying different mics different mic positions on different speakers in your cabinet you tried the dark glass stuff you tried the neural dsp dark glass stuff and i'm not going to give it away here but you came to a shocking conclusion yep on what sounds best but you still
0: ended up i'm not going to give it away you got to listen to the episode (laughs) well done (laughs) cool well i'm excited for that um it's been fun hanging out with you all so until next time We'll see you guys. We're not sure when we're going to do another one, but probably sometime within the next two weeks. We'll do another live one of these. Yeah. Also, um,
1: we have a Facebook group. If you go on Facebook and search for DIY Recording Guys, maybe what we'll do is collect questions on there. And then once there's, you know, 10 questions or something, or five, I don't know, five questions, we can do a live event to, to answer them. Maybe that's one way to, to do it. But I anyway. I do love that idea. Thanks, guys. For, the, for those of you who joined live, uh, and for those of you who are listening to the recording, join us next time. And until then, we remind you to check yourself. Or you wreck yourselves. All right. Okay, see you next time. See you, guys.